It was brought to my attention just recently by the esteemable Mr. Michael Bailey that this past weekend, as I record this, November the 4th, 2017, was the 40th birthday of the original airing of the Incredible Hulk pilot movie. This pilot led to another telefilm and then a five-season TV show starring the character that was instrumental in me not only reading comics, but developing a lifetime love of the medium. The Hulk TV show was one of my favourite shows growing up, and to my great joy, one that holds up today in every aspect that matters. Writing, acting, directing and enjoyment factor. Sure, the special effects are a bit ropey by today's standards, not that the Hulk really has a lot of special effects, but as a character study, the series is one of the best comic book adaptations ever. The aforementioned Michael Bailey and I did a three-hour chat about the series as an episode of Back to the Bins on this here network, and I myself have covered the series before on an earlier episode of Palace, looking at the episode The Snur, but I decided I couldn't really let this birthday pass without at least a cursory mention. To that end, I will be looking today at one of my favourite episodes in the series run, Season 3, Episode 8, Homecoming. Now this is where I would normally do my preamble about the development of the show, the actors and such, but The Incredible Hulk is such a perennial favourite, I kind of feel I've covered it all before. In brief though, for those not familiar with the backstory, triple threat creator, writer, producer, director Kenneth Johnson was at a loose end, having walked off his series The Bionic Woman after disagreements with leading actress Lindsay Wagner. He had a few irons in the fire vis-a-vis his contract with Universal Pictures, particularly a version of Ivanhoe he wanted to make, but Universal had recently optioned a number of properties from Marvel Comics and wondered if Johnson would be interested in any of them. Johnson wasn't. However, one called the Incredible Hulk kept coming back to him, and the idea of a scientist who tampered with forces beyond his ken, causing him to become a rage machine whenever he grew angry, had potential. Johnson picked television royalty Bill Bixby to portray Dr. David Banner, renamed from the comics-correct Bruce Banner, Lou Ferrigno as his green-skinned id the Hulk, and Jack Colvin as nosy investigative reporter Jack McGee. The series was an instant smash. I remember it being picked up pretty quickly by the ITV network in the UK and being screened at 7.30 in the evening. The perfect time for young me to have a bath, get my jammies on and be sat in front of the telly in time for this week's shirt-popping adventure. The Hulk was different to a lot of US telly though. Whilst it was pure escapism, like The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman before it, the series focused a lot on character and wasn't afraid to be downbeat. Dr Banner's life had been destroyed by what had happened to him and the show didn't shy away from that. The banner of the pilot film is embittered by the loss of his wife, driven by a need to understand why some people were able to achieve almost superhuman strength when their loved ones were affected, yet haunted by the fact that he couldn't do that. His anger clouds his reason. He's quite pissy with people. He makes mistakes. And this is his folly. In my head canon, I like to think that Banner always had anger issues, but his wife helped him deal with them. When he lost her, he lost that connection to inner peace which led him down the path he now wanders. By this point in the show's run, the show had clearly found its groove. Johnson had a stable of writers he relied on for the series, including Karen Harris and Jill Sherman, Nicholas Correa and the writer of this episode, Andrew Schneider. 
The series produced its most consistent run of episodes in this third year, with almost every segment being at least enjoyable, and with some being outright classics. This was the season that featured The Psychic, The Slam, The Snur, Prove Positive, Death Mask, and Equinox in the classic column, and Blind Rage, Brainchild, Captive Knight, Broken Image, My Favourite Magician, and Metamorphosis in the entertaining column. There were still stinkers. Babylow, Jake, and Behind the Wheel range from awful to routine, but the hit rate was far better this season than in any other year. No episode was more affecting, though, than Homecoming. Here's the teaser. You spring up from the dead after three years and give us nothing. I couldn't spend another Thanksgiving alone. Maybe we can start all over again. Put the past behind us. We sure can try, Dad. Oh, God, David. You'll never let me be part of your life. Make sure it's the last flight for both of them. No! Dad, no, no! scientist searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry. And now when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The creature is wanted for a murder he didn't commit. David Banner is believed to be dead. And he must let the world think that he is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. After the credits, David is seen watching the Expositional News Network about to take over of a local farmer's land by Dean Eckhart, president of the Eckhart Development Company, in an attempt to modernise the area. This is taking place in Treverton, Colorado. David is stunned to see a Dr. Helen Banner on TV, arguing that the development is unnecessary. In two very economical flashbacks, Willow David grew up in Treverton, and Helen is his heretofore unmentioned sister. This scene is pretty well done. The ENN, copyright Michael Baylor, isn't as clunky as usual, in that it feels like a local news report. The best thing, though, as it often was, was Bixby. He has no dialogue in this four-minute opener, yet everything you need to know about what David is thinking is written on his face. In an instant, fed up of being alone, David takes the risky step of heading to his hometown for Thanksgiving. David's sister, Helen, is played by Diana Muldoor, better known for LA Law and Star Trek. She was interviewed in Starlog magazine issue 141 about her career, and to my great disappointment, she has absolutely no recollection of being in The Incredible Hulk, other than she played a nun in one of her appearances. How do you forget working with the Hulk? David spends the morning revisiting old haunts where he and his sister used to play, and it's these parts of the show that play the best. The subplot with David and Helen's father and Eckhart is standard roughhousing from the bad guy. Innocent farmers are being thrown off their land by unscrupulous developers, all in the name of the future, as you can hear here. 
Hello? No, he's not in. Uh, he might have just pulled up. You want to hang on? Listen, how was the spray? No effect. What did you watch? What Did we spray it even cover? I know how to fly. Did, did we, Helen? Yes, Dad. Well, maybe there'll be a delayed reaction then. The insecticide is supposed to kill on contact. Are you sure? Let me see the spec sheet. I left it at my house, but I'm sure. Was that on telephone? Oh. I don't suppose you want to talk to him. It's Eckert. Oh, Hello, Dean. What do you want? Nothing special. How are you? Oh, I'm just fine. We got a bump of crop in the field. I hope it doesn't spoil your day. Now, D.W., I am not quite the villain you're trying to make me out to be. You want the Grail Valley? You want my farm? That means you want my life. I just want to start building the future. There's no reason you can't be part of it. Why don't you save your utopian speeches for your stockholders? D.W., my model city will become reality. All right. I'm willing to go up another 50 an acre for you. Just turn the Farmers Association around. Dean, I'm going to hang up on you. I don't want you to hear me get sick. The memories David incurs as he wanders around his hometown cause him to become a little cocky, and he drops by his sister's house. It can't be a big surprise that he is seen, and Helen is stunned that her brother is still alive. And it's here we learn more of the backstory. David and his father, D.W. Banner, played by veteran character actor John Marley, do not get along, and this has caused a fractious relationship between David and Helen. We learn more about David as a person, that he always wanted things on his terms, and left and showed up as it pleased him. This is another area the Incredible Hulk scored over the shows of the era. David was a fully fleshed out and believable person. He was deeply flawed, yet kind-hearted and considerate. Whilst the show deviated considerably from the comics, they nailed who Dr. Banner is and should be, and this was instrumental in making this risky premise work for a mainstream audience. The details behind David and his father's antagonism is revealed when we learn that David's mum died with David blaming his dad. We also learn of David's drive for perfection, which came after his mum died. He already had ambitions to be a doctor, but his mum's death pushed him further in that direction. David is press-ganged into helping his sister to try and understand why the healthy crops are dying out, and David's knowledge proves invaluable in helping to figure it out. You were always interested in puzzles. Let's see if we can use one to keep you here. These are longinous worms. They're the larvae of these, spear beetles. The beetles are harmless. The worms are very destructive. And so far, they have proven to be immune to every insecticide we've thrown at them. Am I wetting your scientific appetite? Mm. Now, if the worms are not checked soon, the farmers of Grail Valley are going to lose 60 to 70% of this year's crop. Dad will have to sell the farm. I'm, I'm not an entomologist. Well, the entomologists have already failed. What we need is a biological weapon. You're a biologist. I've already told you I can't afford to be recognized. There are so many people in town who know who I am. You can stay here and work. You never have to leave the lab. Besides, you owe me one. Hmm? Remember that doll you ruined? The one I got for my fifth birthday? You dissected her in the name of science. Oh, 
Helen. You have got to promise me. You won't ask me about things. And when I have to leave. Agreed. And you can't tell anyone about me. Anyone. All right, I'll, uh, I'll try. But it's not for you. for that damn doll. <laughs> of course, all these pent-up feelings weigh heavily on David's mind and the unresolved issues with his mother and father come back to him in a nightmare. The show has already established that David sometimes halts out because of stress-related dreams and such is the case here. As the transformation begins, Helen enters David's room to see what's occurring. why David sleeps in his clothes. Anyway, Helen is making some headway with the creature, but he suddenly sees a picture of their father and, angered, runs away. There's an unfortunate blooper here as the autumnal winds dislodge Ferrigno's wig. Still, the creature heads towards the subject of his anger, as he always did, and runs over to the Banner farm. After throwing a few toys around in a temper tantrum, D.W. Banner follows the creature with his gun, only to find that the creature has calmed down long enough to revert to Dr. Banner. He finds David being comforted by his sister, kicking the story into its second act. Rather sensibly, the writer of the episode has pushed the rather routine subplot into the background, preferring instead to concentrate on relationships. David and D.W. have an awkward exchange that underscores the difficulties they are having. You alright, David? Yeah. It's been a long time. Yes, it has. You look fine. You do. Not much like me. But uh, you look fine. Thank you, so do you. You uh, always did take more after your mother. Yeah. Guess we had our differences. Oh, yeah. Maybe we can start all over again and put the past behind us. We sure can try, Dad. This is the first Thanksgiving that I've ever had any reason to celebrate. Let's invite our friends and, and let them know. Dad, that's impossible. I told you. Our close friends, David. Those that care. They Dad, won't, they won't. please, no. Why are you so secretive? You're not, you're not a criminal, are you? Dad, this is not very easy for me, so please don't make it any harder. I'm not trying to make it any harder. 
I'm trying to understand. All right, But Dad. you don't tell me anything. Dad, anything you... at all. Just believe me, I don't want it this way, so don't force me to leave. That's the last thing that I want. This was a great scene, played magnificently. David is uncomfortable, DW is trying his best, but he keeps pushing, and David is too headstrong to compromise. As usual with good writing, both points of view are admirably expressed, and neither is the bad guy. But, crucially, neither is the good guy either. Both men clearly have unresolved issues regarding the death of the wife and mother. I think this is why this episode stands out, in that it's about David. The best episodes of the show tended to be the ones that concentrated on David's quest for a cure, and the other episodes were standard villain of the week stuff. David would stumble into somebody else's problem, normally a pretty woman, and help out, but the stories tended to be about the guest star rather than about David Banner. In this episode, the story is about David, fathers and sons. American fiction does have a fixation on the relationship between fathers and sons, but when handled correctly, it can still be a potent theme. We have to take a break at this point to have the bad guy of the week plot. Eckhart learns that David and Helen have managed to synthesise enough of a serum that causes the worms attacking the crops to metamorphose into beetles and thus be harmless. Eckhart, however, has a scientist of his own on the payroll and he is set the job of counteracting it. Eckhart now moves into the moustache-twirling villain stage, getting evil henchman one to kill DW after the crop dusting is done. David and D.W. still aren't getting along on the drive to the crop duster airfield, so David decides to check out the plane they have hired to spread the cure has the right amount of the serum. He quickly learns that it has been substituted by Eckhart's counteracting serum, but is cold-cocked by evil henchman number one. David awakens too late to stop his dad from taking the plane, and he runs after it as it barrels down the runway for takeoff. Rather stupidly, David leaps on the plane and clings to the wing, which, understandably, stresses him out. weight is throwing the pilot off, but none more than when said weight causes the wing to collapse. The Hulk holds the wing in place long enough for the pilot to bring the plane in for an emergency landing. There's another funny blooper as we see the Hulk wears green underpants. All of this action is played with no score, which is very unusual for a show like this, where action was normally underscored with pulsating drums. DW confronts the Hulk, who he now knows is David, having seen the transformation, and tells him to go before he's seen. David, wait. David, please. David. David. What was that thing? Son. Your wing? Sabotage. Look at these bolts. Echo. You'd better go, David. You'll be seen. Now, please, David, go. DW, are you okay? David, please go. Now, go! Ferrigno excels in this scene. 
actually conveying some real emotion and really selling the Hulk's childlike understanding of the situation. And John Marley also does very good work, being forced to tell his son to leave and understanding why it's necessary after spending the entire episode not understanding why David always left. The Hulk runs away, tears in his eyes. The final scene is heartbreaking. Jack McGee shows up, and in the background we hear Helen and McGee have a mundane conversation about McGee's job and how he became an investigative journalist, whilst David and DW meet on the porch. DW is giving David his bottomless little brown bag. They share a moment, again without dialogue, and David leaves, with McGee enjoying the banner hospitality on Thanksgiving. Dad! This is the reporter who called, Mr... McGee. My father. How do you do? Mr. McGee. I'm afraid he came all the way from Chicago for nothing. Oh, what a shame. And on Thanksgiving, too. Let us make it up to you. Oh. Stay for dinner. No, I, I couldn't possibly. It would be imposing. Nonsense. The place is already set. You see, we were expecting a relative. And at the last minute, he couldn't come. Please stay, Mr. McGee. <laughs> it looks wonderful. Thank you. I'd like to. It's very nice. It's sad, you know, when you think about the people who don't have Thanksgiving. Well, Mr. McGee, have yourself some potatoes. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've had a home cooked meal. Again, a magnificent scene. Both actors conveying everything that needs to be said without words. And this is a delightful episode. A feeling of melancholy permeates the entire endeavour, which keeps it on the right side of schmaltz. The performances are all great, particularly all the banners, and the ending is a wonderfully ironic touch. Another one of the reasons for the show's success and longevity is that sad side. We felt for David. It didn't always turn out alright for him every week, and life was a struggle. Most TV was wish fulfilment, but very few of the viewers would want to be David Banner. The score to the episode is also unusual. Two action scenes are music-less, whilst the character moments are all scored with a low-key version of the Lonely Man theme. Unusual choices for a show of this type and era, but ones that work wonderfully. I think a case can be argued that The Incredible Hulk owes his popularity in general to this show, and episodes like this prove why. This was originally conceived as a two-parter, but trimmed down to one in the editing stage, and I think that was the right decision. I would imagine that most of it would have just been more padding with the family, all of which we get from this episode, and stretching out of the rather mundane evil developer subplot, which was stuff we've seen in every other episode and don't really need to see again. On the whole, though, The Incredible Hulk is one of those shows that still stands the test of time on an enjoyment level. The haunting image of Dr. David Banner picking up his bag and wandering down the loneliest highways he can find to the mournful piano noodlings of Joe Harnell have stuck with an entire generation. places to find TV shows from yesteryear is Daily Motion. Daily Motion is like YouTube's cut price cousin, the kind of place that turns a blind eye to such frivolous things as copyright law. 
It doesn't so much openly mock it as quietly sticks its tongue out from behind its back. Down the rabbit hole of Daily Motion, I found the full-length original pilot movie from Man From Atlantis. Man From Atlantis was one of those bizarre shows that failed to find an audience stateside and sunk after only 13 episodes, but was oddly quite successful here in the UK. I remember the show reasonably fondly, recalling how kids in primary school playgrounds would pretend to swim in that way that Patrick Duffy did in the show. That kind of bizarre, is he having a fit thing that in retrospect was no sillier than pretending to run in slow motion. Man from Atlantis was an attempt by Star Trek line producers Herb Solow and Robert H. Justman to do for the sea what Trek did for space, i.e. shows how weird and wonderful it can be, whilst also shining a spotlight on humanity's foibles along the way. The titular man from Atlantis was Mark Harris, so named, because, well, I couldn't actually figure out why he was named Mark Harris. It was just the name that the scientist who helps him, Dr Elizabeth Merrill, played by Belinda J. Montgomery, gave him. This initial pilot movie was the first of four telefilms and aired in early 1977. They were surprisingly well received by audiences and buoyed by the ratings, the network quickly ordered the show to series. Patrick Duffy, now better known as Bobby Ewing, starred as Mark, as already mentioned, and Alan Fudge rounded out the cast as C.W. Crawford Jr., Merrill's boss at the Foundation for Oceanic Research. The initial pilot presentation starts out quite strongly. Merrill is at a party, but called away when something happens. See, on the beach, a bunch of scientist types have found a strange man washed ashore, a kind of half-man, half-fish hybrid, who is rushed to hospital. He's gradually becoming more and more dehydrated, and Merrill makes a desperate gamble and orders him taken back to the sea where he miraculously recuperates swiftly. Merrill and Crawford make slow progress with the man who cannot speak English, but they are amazed by his recuperative abilities. Further studies reveal that Mark has webbed hands, gills instead of lungs, can breathe underwater, swim faster than a dolphin, and dive to the depths of at least seven miles. The first half of the pilot, written by Mayo Simon and directed by Lee Katzin, is intriguing if very slow moving. Mark's abilities are revealed slowly, but he learns quickly, meaning he can speak English by about 25 minutes into the 90 minute telefilm. The character moments are reasonably well done, although all of the actors confuse acting like intelligent people with stand and look pensive all the time. Duffy is great in the lead role, but Mark's personality is very much a cold fish. He has none of the superior nature of Marvel Comics' Namor the Submariner, nor the interesting Atlantean backstory. In fact, Mark's backstory is barely alluded to. He could be from Atlantis, he could just as easily be some kind of mutation, or, as is apparently referenced later in the series, an alien being. Nowadays, this would be the big arc plot. Who is Mark Harrison? How did he come to be? Back then, it was simply a case of getting it out of the way so the writers could get to the soggy villain of the week stuff. Of course, the military are here and they want to weaponise Mark, because of course they do. Even here, Man from Atlantis drops the ball. Whilst it was nice that the military and Mark come to an agreement, they will help Mark find out where he's from in exchange for Mark doing things for them from time to time, the problem is everyone is just so nice. No one has any real personality to speak of, they just stand there being nice to each other. It's hard to cook up any drama when everyone is pals. The first half of the pilot at least attempts some decent character work and, as I already mentioned, lays out Mark's strengths, but also concentrates on his weaknesses. He can't stay out of the water for too long, else he'd dry up and die, but unlike Aquaman, he can't communicate with our undersea friends. 
The second half of the pilot, though, runs a little bit sillier. And despite supposedly being the climax to the episode, it's actually slower and less interesting than the first half. The Navy ask Mark to help locate one of their missing submarines, and Mark agrees. He discovers an enormous undersea habitat constructed by a Mr. Schubert, played by King Tut himself, Victor Buono. Schubert is a mad scientist who has mind-controlled a number of noted scientists into helping him with his harebrained scheme to destroy all the nations of the world with their own nuclear weapons. Mark floods the base, saves the scientists, and leaves Schubert to drown, but he apparently shows up later in the series to do more villainy. Buono isn't as campy in this as he was in Batman, so even this opportunity to lighten the mood somewhat is bogged down by a pilot script that takes itself far too seriously. Mark's literal fish-out-of-water shtick should have been good for a few laughs, but laughs are few and far between on Man from Atlantis. By all means, take the character and his situation as seriously as necessary, but a few characters who aren't quite so dull would have elevated this pilot somewhat. It's not that it's bad, it's not, not really. There are a lot worse shows out there, and there is at least a point to it, as well as a decent science fiction idea at the heart of the story. It's just all a bit boring. In all fairness, the actors acquit themselves admirably with what they are given to work with. Duffy is compelling as Mark, and had he been allowed to be a little bit more like Patrick Duffy and a little less like Flipper, the show may have gone somewhere. This was Duffy's first major role, and as such, he enjoyed a fair bit of indignity from those tiny yellow shorts he was to the irritable contact lenses. But his earnestness means he has nothing to be embarrassed about. This ended up being a mere blip on an extensive career, and he was still willing to discuss Man from Atlantis whilst not being blind to its failings. Acknowledging where he came from, Duffy recently authored a book about Mark Harris, set 20 years after the series, and exploring his origins in ways the show never could. Montgomery gets to be intelligent and attractive as Dr. Merrill, providing good support for Duffy, and the rest of the cast are okay, if the usual 70s TV mannequins. Man from Atlantis was expected to be a bigger hit than it was in the era of Steve Austin, David Banner, Jamie Summers and Diana Prince, and numerous merchandising opportunities were scrapped when the series sank after 13 episodes. Nevertheless, some tie-ins did appear, including the obligatory novels and a Marvel comic. Whilst Duffy, who loved comics as a kid, was made up with this, the rest of the comics readership wondered why Marvel, who already had their own Man from Atlantis in Namor, would pony up license rights for the character, especially as they had ignored the comics rights to Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman, despite these being tailor-made for Marvel Comics adaptations. Even though Man from Atlantis had some solid creators on it, like Bill Mantlo, John Buscema and Joe Sinnott, it too disappeared after seven issues. Man from Atlantis is all but forgotten today, and was going to be the subject of a full episode, but I quickly realised after viewing this pilot film that it didn't really make me want to seek out any more. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea did this beforehand, and Sequest DSV did it afterwards, and even those shows struggled to get a lot of mileage out of the concept, despite it being an interesting and appealing one. The four telefilms are, by all accounts, much better than the series that followed, something Duffy openly admits. But Man from Atlantis just wasn't batshit crazy enough to keep me watching. Hello. Do you enjoy movie scores?
Do you like science fiction? Do you like fantasy? And do you like movies? Uh, uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. What happened? Uh, I had a slight weapons malfunction, but uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Well, I have a podcast for you. Soundtrack Alley. It's a podcast where I take you on a journey through the time of my childhood and beyond to give you a glimpse into the world of movies, science fiction, fantasy, and other films that touch me on a personal level. You'll also enjoy interviews from film composers from famous movies from the past or even current times. Enjoy the interaction I have with guests on my show every so often, and check out other shows that share in guest spots. So sit back, relax, and let the soundtrack world wash over you, and check out Soundtrack Alley. You'll love it. Welcome back. Let's have a, a rummage through the email sack. Our first email tonight is from Daniel Doherty, Palace of James Tiberius Kirk. Greetings and felicitations, Andy. Hello, Daniel. Thank you for your Trek-tacular mirror-mirror commentary. It always does my heart good to hear someone give classic Trek the love and respect that it deserves. One thing that sometimes annoys me is how some fans seem to regard the original series as just a part of the ever-expanding Star Trek universe, instead of the series that started it all. There would be no Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, or any other iteration of Trek without Kirk, Spock, Bones, and the rest of the original Enterprise crew, and I wish more people would acknowledge that. Growing up, classic Trek was my Star Trek. This was the year I liked best, the uniforms, the props, the starship designs I thought were the coolest, and those were the characters I was most interested in and wanted to be like. The only problem was that throughout the 90s and early 2000s, I always felt like the original series was constantly being shoved into the corner in favour of the next generation, which always stuck in my craw, and it's partly why I'm not as big a fan of the Trek spin-offs. And I'm stopping myself right here before I go off on a tangent about what I really think about the next generation. A philosophy that I at least try to adhere to is you should be allowed to be the type of fan you want to be at the level you feel most comfortable being at. If you want to be the type of fan who loves every single aspect of a particular franchise, fine. If you're only interested in a particular version of a character or series, that is also fine. However, ostracising other fans for not being the same type of fan that you are is not okay. But that's the impression I get with Star Trek fans, that I have to watch every single episode of every series when I'm really only interested in the original. Or at least, that how it feels to me. Your mileage may vary. Um, I don't know that I've ever, ever found that to be honest with you, but um, I, I'm with you partially. I consider that the original Star Trek is Star Trek. You know, that's the show. that, And it's that show made at that time with those people that made it what it is. All the stuff that came after that isn't, you know, proper Star Trek in my head. I know it has Star Trek on the title, and it is still Star Trek. But to me, it was that it was those three seasons of that show at that time. Now, that's not to say that the other stuff isn't enjoyable, but there are certain aspects of things that you have no control of 
that change as you get older. So by the time we get to the next generation, Gene Roddenberry is very much believing his own press of being a, a visionary rather than being a very good producer. And the, the writing staff that were there for the original show aren't present anymore. Gene Coon has sadly passed away and all, a lot of the other people who worked on that show are no longer there. So the next generation has, by necessity, to become a different thing. And it did become a different thing. And it became a very successful thing. And I like The Next Generation a great deal for what it is. But um, I've had occasion recently to, when I watched Mirror Mirror, I stopped the recording and I flung an episode of The Next Generation on. I watched an episode called um, Lower Decks. And the difference between the two shows, despite both being Star Trek, was, was quite profound. The original show was very fast-paced and very flash and slick for the time that it was made. Um, I mean, if some episodes feel a little bit slow-paced now, if, if some of the costumes look a little bit threadbare or some of the sets don't look perhaps as good as modern stuff, that's because of budgetary restrictions and technology restrictions. But if you compare the original Star Trek with any other drama show, being made in 1966, the original Star Trek looks light years ahead of those shows. For God's sake, Bonanza couldn't even get the Ponderosa to look like a real place. It looked like a soundstage. And yet here was Star Trek creating alien races and alien planets and um, aliens, different aliens on a, on a weekly basis. And the show was fast-paced. Look at Mirror Mirror. Mirror Mirror is an incredibly fast-paced episode. And yet in 50 minutes, they introduce a complex science fiction idea. As I mentioned in the two track episodes that I did, the idea of a parallel universe was not in common parlance when that episode was made. So they have to introduce that concept to a mainstream audience. And this is another thing that bugs me, that I will get on a tangent about if I'm allowed to. Star Trek was not a cult thing. Star Trek was made for a major network television show for a mainstream audience. You know, it wasn't made for a tiny audience of people. So anyway, in 50 minutes, they introduce a complex science fiction idea. They tell a complete story and they still have room for character, comedy and action. Throughout that whole 50 minutes, there's drama, there's action, there's comedy, and a story is told. By contrast, the Next Generation episode had a very simple plot, but focused far more for its 44-minute running time on character. And it's a character drama rather than a science fiction drama. That story in Lower Decks could have been told in any number of other shows. ER could do Lower Decks. You know, what are the people who push the trolleys around doing while George Clooney's off being dramatic with Carol? You know, whereas Mirror Mirror was a story only Star Trek could do. And I felt that as the show went along, it started doing less science fiction ideas and more stories that could have been done on other shows. Now, I like The Next Generation a great deal. I like Deep Space Nine a great deal. I've grown to thoroughly enjoy Enterprise. And I think Discovery is interesting. Um, the only one I'm not really a fan of is Voyager. And I've gone into, into great detail as why I'm not a fan of Voyager. But I never felt that the show I was being... You had to watch everything. Because I've, I've still not watched everything. 
But my my fandom is with the original show. The books that I prefer reading are about those original characters. The um, that's where my jam is with Star Trek, even though I watch and enjoy the others. Anyway, sorry about that. I've, I've rambled away from your email, Dan. I do apologise if my email's generated into lengthy rant. Not as lengthy as my diversion. That I hope it's still somewhat coherent. I've had this bottled up for a while and it just came out. I'm going to go back to what I was saying here earlier. I appreciate hearing you talk Trek, whether it's comparing a new Trek comic to the original series, your top 10 Trek episodes or audio commentaries. Looking forward to whatever you have planned next for the Palace of Glittering Delights. Live long and prosper. Dan. Well, thank you very much, Dan, for that. Uh, it certainly provoked um, a rant from me as well. So maybe people like that. I don't know. Chris Franklin's emailed in with Mirror Comics. Hello, and Hello, Christopher. Thank you for the overview of the Mirror Mirror sequel comics. I only have a few issues of this story since newsstand distribution for Trek in my area was spotty. I don't know why I never picked up the TPs until now, but I really want to. Off to eBay, Chris. Have a look, Chris, in the 50p bins or 50 cent bins or whatever. There are some really good issues of that original DC Comics run. Len Wein did a double-sized issue, I believe, for the 20th anniversary, where um, the premise is that in Tomorrow is Yesterday, when the crew slingshot back to the 23rd century, they overshoot by 20 years and meet the movie crew. And the movie crew and the TV crew all have to work together to slingshot them back 20 years, but in such a way that neither of them will remember the encounter. And that is, that, um, you know, the premise sounds a bit, oh, reset button. But again, at the time that Len Wein wrote that issue, we weren't seeing Voyager every week press the reset button. So it, it was, it was... It was reasonably different. And it's just a good story. It's just a really fun story. Track down that issue. Have a look on Mike's Amazing World for which issue it is. I think it's got big 20th anniversary story slapped on the cover, so you'll recognise it. And see if you can find that one. And um, thinking about it, that may be a candidate for a future episode of this show, because it's just such a good issue. Anyway, that's it for email this week. And that's it for this impromptly put together show. Um... I hope you'll join me next time, whatever the hell it is I decide to do. As usual, Palace of Gritting, Grittering, the Palace of Grit. Yes, because this is a gritty show. Um, maybe I should say fuck just to prove how gritty I am. Um, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcasting network. And to support the show, go through the website, click on the Amazon button. And when you buy stuff off Amazon, including stuff for the Kindle, you give us a kickback, which helps us keep producing these shows but hopefully you enjoy as much as we do i'll see you next time thank you my friends goodbye